we are live on Thursday afternoon at two o'clock, episode 83 of Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. Uh, my guest this afternoon is a grassroots political strategist with a toe in lobbying and tactical voting initiatives. Uh, we got talking at Byline Festival last week, uh, and I thought he had some uh, some really interesting ideas about where we're at now on the left and where those of us on the left of the political landscape can expect to be if we play our cards right and indeed what those cards might be. Uh, please welcome to the show my guest this afternoon, Josh Russell. Woo! Hi. Hi. <laughs> How are you doing? I nice am great. How are you doing? Not bad. A little bit chilly where I am. But... Are you? I'm fucking roasting, mate. I've got the sun coming in here. I've got... You know, I feel a little bit greenhoused. <laughs> yeah, and no, I sit in a little cupboard, so uh, it's a bit different. <laughs> yeah. Um, thanks very much for, for taking time out of your, no doubt, very busy schedule uh, this afternoon. Um, I guess a good place to start, Josh, would be to give people a bit of background about what you do and how you came to do it, like what your background is. Yeah, so um, my background is mainly uh, technology, um, but always with a kind of uh, campaigning or political kind of side to it. I've worked in some big charities. Uh, I've worked in some big tech companies as well um, and done my own little projects along the way of, of both kinds of like you know, tech startups, mini campaigns. Mm. Um, but I suppose one of the most formative things in my kind of like campaigning career was working at Comic Relief um, in, in what was a very small digital team at the time mm-hmm. uh, where we were running, you know, the donations platform for Red Nose Day and stuff like that. But um, we were also um, tasked with uh, basically operating the Make Poverty History campaign um, and the Live 8 uh, concert that went along with that. And that was, you know, this huge, huge campaign yeah. where a lot of us learned a lot very quickly, you know, because we had a, literally a matter of weeks to put it all together. So sort of like progressive tech, tech with a conscience. Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, yeah, kind of counter to a lot of the, you know, the way a lot of people think about tech, I guess. Sure. That's a big conversation. Sure. And so then at some point you've made the move from that kind of um, like charity sector uh, to I- into sort of like left leaning politics, full blown, right? Yeah. I mean, left, unsure, progressive. Yes, I think. Um, labels don't help sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so most recently been working on um, kind of uh, Brexit related things. So helping people understand Brexit. Um, fighting different bits of Brexit, you know, um, every every time something Brexit happens, there was another fight to ha- be had, you know. Yeah. Uh, and it all it all came down to Article Fifty, I, I guess. Um, but yeah, that's been the last three, three or four years, or five or six years. Um, and then more recently, getting into like, okay, what's the root of all this stuff? What's the cause? You know, mm. what can we, what do we really need to do? Um, and I think ultimately, a lot of it comes down to a change of government at this point. Sure, sure, and. So let's let's sort of stay in in terms of your uh, like your background and, and mm. working in that sort of Brexit space. Can you give us an example of some of the like projects that you've worked on? To, were they sort of like raising awareness or kind of gathering votes in Parliament? Or yeah, so um, it kind of actually took the form of a large community of people trying to do all sorts of little projects together, really, and helping each other out. So we have um, we have um, about four hundred or so kind of technology design people. Uh, some marketers, some copywriters, uh, basically all in, you know, Slack or other other channels, um, thinking up ideas. And, um, you know, so I, I was really a facilitator in that, although, you know, was, you know, uh, built a few things myself. Uh, one of the most prominent things that came out of all that was a website called MyEU. Okay. Um, MyEU.UK. And it was basically a 
map of where EU spending had been around you. So you could put your postcode in yeah. and like go, oh, that, that club around the corner got 50 grand last year or, you know, uh, my park um, got refurbished from EU funding. Um, and it really helps because like so much of what the EU does is kind of invisible, mm. but it's all around you as well. And, um, you know, so there was a really good little platform that uh, helped kind of tell those really local stories. Um, and it turns out pretty much everywhere in the UK has been, you know, seen the benefit um, directly, really directly. But it's just not talked about. Yeah, that was one of the, the, the sort of takeaways uh, from Carol Cotwaller's, uh, what's it called, a TED Talk, um, mm -hmm. uh, where she was talking about her hometown in Wales and how much money the EU had put into this town, the local facilities, and yet nobody yeah. knew where the money was coming from or how much the eu had done for that town yeah. but they had all not all but you know a majority had voted to then leave the european union even yeah. though they'd benefited from it uh, and I, I remember thinking around that time when i first watched that uh i don't really remember an awful lot of promotion like kind of pr stuff coming from the eu around the brexit referendum perhaps there was an element of complacency to it um do you think there's a lesson to be learned there that we need to be a little bit more <laughs> PR savvy and I mean telling stories is important you know um, and uh, a personal local story is really powerful uh, and I think you know when you hear those it really hits you hard and it's emotional and so many so many of us can relate you know to the personal stories that other people are going through and it, it really does unify us right across the country uh, across all sorts of different you know groups of people um, and yeah, I think, I mean, I don't, I don't know whether, the, whether it would have been appropriate for the EU to get involved in telling those stories, mm. but there was certainly a lot of, uh, you know, collateral that could be used, you know, like the data that we had for the EU spending, locked up in spreadsheets, right? Yeah. Really unuseful uh, medium, putting on a map just really helped. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think if you look back the last 40 years, we were just really terrible at telling the story of the EU. Really, you I suppose know. it's difficult to battle against. Like, what's that stat where it's like if if somebody tells you a bad story or a scary thing that happened to them, mm. like they're they're more likely to tell. Is it like five or seven people about that? Right. But a good story, they'll like maybe tell one or two other people. Like, oh, guess what happened today? Yeah, I fucking found a quid on the floor. Oh, well, that's amazing. I can't wait for the movie. Like, yeah, you know, I mean, it's like not as interesting. But I nearly got hit by a bus today. That's fucking <laughs> wow. Tell me everything. You just have to look at the news to kind of see that bias, right? So yeah. the headline is always some big disaster somewhere or something, you know, really controversial. And then the puppy stories are right at the end, aren't they? Yeah. You know, what if we heard all the good stuff uh, kind of e with equal pegging, right? Well, it goes back to our brains, doesn't it? You know, we've, we're problem solvers. We look for problems. That's why we spend so much time <laughs> bitching and moaning. Yeah. Uh, but there's definitely, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a question to be raised there that if you are the EU... Uh, and it's in your interest to remind people of the success stories and the benefits that they have as a result of being part of that family, if you like, if that's not too yeah. fluffy, a cuddly word for it. Um, how come they then, How like, why would it not be appropriate for them to communicate that stuff back to the UK public? But it is appropriate for, let's say, vote leave to say we should fucking leave because like, look, Tur Turkish people, look. Yeah. Um, I mean, I just in my head, I can imagine that if the EU got involved too much in um, our democratic process, mm. right, uh, that, that would be called out um, and possibly rightly so. 
Um, but you know, there are, there are very neutral ways of telling good stories about you know why the EU is important to every member, not just the UK. Mm. You know, um, and we're seeing it now. I, I think from the outside, where there is positive stuff to unity, um, and of course we're missing out. I mean, you, you don't even need to talk about uh, crossing borders as being an issue to understand why, you know, why being a group of other, other countries is important. Um, yeah, but I think one of the major things was that we were also not very good at admitting its faults as well, right? Mm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, all sorts of angles to it. And I think people will obviously be talking about this for a long time. I think one of the ironies of Brexit was that it was actually the beginning rather than the end of, of all of that. Mm. You know, people who are sick and tired of hearing about it, the EU kind of triggered the beginning of hearing about the EU for the next 40 <laughs> years while we basically start from scratch again. Yeah, you know, every single thing we do is a step closer to rejoining the EU right now, yeah. uh, and it wasn't Remainers who triggered that. No, no, and it's also it, it was it was a sort of like crossing a bell curve of like so I imagine it on the left hand side of the bell curve it's sort of almost imaginary problems of like perceived immigration issues where or or like um, uh, a fear of let's say multiculturalism like to to a large extent fantasy problems and then once you get up over the bell curve you go down now we're in this realm of real problems of like trade logistics northern ireland protocol possible civil unrest like we've kind of swapped the uh you know what like the the luxury of having fantasy problems for jumping into this this new world of like oh fuck you know what's gonna happen if i don't get my medication in or you know yeah. should we book a holiday to belfast next year i, I don't know but that was all hyperbole, wasn't it, originally? You know, um, I remember uh, insulin and various cancer drugs were, you know, at, at risk through various import reasons, you mm. know, and not because they wouldn't be able to come in, but because they would be taking too long to come in and therefore, you know, uh, because they go off, would have issues. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, simply going on holiday, right? People thought, oh, no, I'll just pay the £7 visa and it'll be fine, right? Mm. Um, it's like, well, first of all, it's a, you know, if there's a family of you, it's going to cost more. Secondly, you know, your money's going to be worth less. It's really hard to explain why, but it is. And so just being in, in a different country is going to cost you more than it used to. Mm. You know, I mean, one of the other projects we made um, was can I move to Barcelona.com? Right. Um, and I think it, it's probably down now. Um, but the idea was that, of course, yes, right now you can, you know, but here's going to be the issues and why, why it might be harder later. And I think, you know, there was this kind of, there's very, there's obviously absolutism, you know, in how we think about a lot of things, unfortunately. Uh, and the absolutism there was like, but you are still going to be able to move to Barcelona. So what's your problem? Yeah. It's like, well, yeah, but the level at which it's going to be easy or hard is the issue, you know. Mm. And you're just saying, but we are still going to be able to do it. It's like, yeah, we are still going to be able to do it. But why make it harder for ourselves? Yeah. Like, and, and what's the net benefit of it? Like, what are you getting yeah. in return? Yeah. I mean, we're I waiting for those, for those, aren't we? I mean... You know, we have a minister for it and a department for it. Um, Who seems to have so much time on his hands that he spends it walking around pinning post-it notes to their desks. Yeah, there was some irony in that, wasn't there? Like, you know, he was expecting people to be out, you know, that doing work meant being at your desk while he was not at his desk, presumably doing his work. <laughs> yeah. You know, their self-awareness is, well, the lack of self-awareness is mind-boggling. Yeah, yeah. Um, so... So let's sort of move on a little bit from from Brexit um, because I don't want to get yes please you know, uh, <laughs> attacked too much by uh, frothing Brexiters. Um, so so you worked uh, a lot on sort of digital uh, products around Brexit, mm. around uh, raising awareness and and so on. But then more recently, you've moved into 
like kind of tactical voting kind of spaces or what are you doing now? Yeah. Um, so as well as the Brexit work, we've been working on, um, you know, democracy as a whole, right? Um, it's clearly quite a busy space. There's lots of organizations working on uh, either improving democracy, you know, think tanks and, and other organizations, you know, just who've been doing this for a very long time. Um, you've got much more kind of hands-on organizations where they're trying to um, like raise engagement, you know, mm. get people to be part of democracy more uh, and then look at the reasons that people aren't or mechanisms that are in the way. Um, but also, of course, you know, democracy is a tool we can use for change, you know, um, arguably it's the biggest one we have. Um, you know, when, uh, you know, democracy is about controlling the biggest budgets on the planet, right? Uh, mm -hmm. Who, um, you know, but these organizations that have responsibility for more people's lives than any other organizations. Uh, and we have a chance to choose who, who runs them <laughs> and what they do with their money. Yeah. Right. Um, and I think, you know, any problem you're trying to solve ultimately comes down to who's in charge. And, the, you know, the biggest who's in charge is your government, right? Sure. Um, and so if you really want to affect change, that's where you start, I think. Uh, and, you know, it's the difference between, you know, what I say, you know, you're either banging on the door trying to ask people for change or taking a seat at the table, right, mm -hmm. and making those changes happen. Um, and I think a lot of us are spending a lot of energy banging on the door at the moment. Um, but if you focus on actually trying to take a seat, um, then maybe we don't need to bang on the door anymore. And so where would you grade <clears throat> British democracy and people's ability to affect change right now? Where do you think we're at? Well, that's a fascinating question. I, I mean, I honestly do think we're not one of the worst, obviously, right? Um, you know, uh, there's an election going on in, in the Philippines right now, right? Um, and that's, that's a pretty bad place when it comes to, like, the, the quality of a democracy, you know? Mm -hmm. um, um, however... You know, the way that our democracy is set up to work, even though it is, you know, just about still a democracy, um, is one that isn't very representative. And I was trying to think the other day, like, who is represented in government? And it's really fascinating to think, like, go, go through the list. Like, we obviously know that people that don't vote are, are technically not represented, mm. you know, and there's like 15 million people who register to vote and then don't show up. So they're not represented. Um, there are a lot of people that sit in safe seats, you know, a safe seat is where you, you know, your vote won't really affect the outcome. So there's millions of people there that aren't, um, aren't represented as well because the person they vote for or the party they vote for or the policies they vote for don't end up being in government or even having a voice, you know, mm. in government. Um, then you've got people that voted for opposition, you know, current opposition parties who win, but they don't really have any say in parliament because of the way that our majority government works. Yeah. And so even, even those people who did show up voted for an opposition party, won the seat, but now don't really have any power. Well, they're not represented either. Can you give so, an like, example <laughs> of that? Because it's, I suppose, from my mind, possibly quite quite ignorant mind, mm. I sort of imagine, right, okay, so you've got the Tories who are in power, then you've got Labour, who were reasonably crushed by the Tories' 80-seat majority, then you've got the Liberal Democrats, and then you've got some other smaller parties who won seats, but because of the size of the seats that they won they are then what prohibited or frustrated in terms of how much time they get to spend in the house of commons debating or how does it work i suppose it depends how much you think debating has an effect and i think when you've got an 80 seat majority that debate doesn't have as much effect as you might think mm. um in a in a close call parliament you know where you you've got a handful of uh, seats as a majority 
your debate might change the minds of a few of the MPs sitting on the other side of the table. Mm-hmm. Um, but even when you change a few minds in this case, you've still got, you know, 50 people that are just going to do what the whip says. You know, so I think it depends how much you think debate is effectual in that case. You know, I think it obviously does have an effect, but not to the level that it traditionally has. Um, and I think this particular government has shown us that, you know, petitioning them, protesting them, debating them, uh, highlighting facts to them, you know, uh, makes no difference at all. Yeah. Uh, they have an agenda and, and, they're, and they're, they're on it and that's what they're doing. That's know. a really interesting point to make because I suppose like a lot of people um when I was chatting uh, with Marina Perkis a, a few weeks ago um she I asked when she got into politics and she said the Brexit referendum and I was like me me too uh you know it was I as far as I'm concerned like I, I kind of hold my hands up I'm like I was I was radicalized by that <laughs> referendum um but it's I, I'm also sort of acutely aware that that maybe politics wasn't always this bad, but it's, it seems to me that when I watch parliamentary debates or, or when I go searching like a, or researching uh, for videos or something, and I'm, I'm trying to see what people say in the House of Commons when they're discussing, for example, the internal markets bill a couple of years ago, what the responses were, was it actually a debate? I come away with this perception that it's all pantomime. It's yeah. it's just this guy stands up and says, but have you considered X, Y, and Z? Then the Tory stands up and says the thing that was debunked fucking like six days ago. So it's like yeah. there's no actual mean, meaningful transaction and reaching a consensus. It's as you've just said a minute ago, it's what the whip has said. It's like you will fucking support this. You know, I mean, was it always this bad? I would say it's even worse than that at the moment in that it's essentially all scripted, right? And I don't mean that they literally sit down and write a script together, but they all have, have you know, uh, they know what's going to come up. They know what questions are coming. They've already written answers to them. It's not really debate. They're performing debate, you mm. know, at that point. Now, obviously, there are all sorts of other you know, places within government and parliament where proper debate does go on. There's committees as well, of course, and all sorts of other places. Mm. Um, but yeah, the, you know, it is performative. Pant- pantomime? Yeah, you know, in some cases, certainly some of them treat it like that. Uh, and I just can't imagine what it's like being someone sensible in that room. It just must be so frustrating. Like, why would you even show up some of the time? Yeah. You know, so even those people, I think, are using it as a way to get their soundbite heard, you know, that they can then go and use it on their own campaigning. And I, I get that. I completely get that, you know, because they need to be able to say, look, I stood in Parliament and I said a thing on your behalf. And this is what I this is what I said, you know. And he, But even that is kind of like, well, if you just saying things to make sure you get elected next time, you know, without addressing the real issue of why what you're saying isn't being heard mm. you know, and why you being there doesn't have an effect on the outcomes, then why are any of us really there? And I think, you know, that then starts to talk about, you know, how that is potentially a strategic um, thing happening, right? We are, we are being basically taught that this doesn't matter. Mm. And of course, like I said earlier, it's the only thing that really does. Yeah, you know, um, and this touches, you know, then on, you know, well, they're all the same, aren't they? You know, and they're clearly not. They're clearly not all the same. Yeah. Do you think they are all as cynical and and careerist as they come off? Because like I, I look at them standing up there on the benches, uh, reciting the line that they've been given uh, or that they've given themselves like 10, 15 times before. And as I've said, it's already been debunked 10 or 15 times. But yeah. there they are again, wheeling it out. Um, or do you think... Like, is it just the pressure of the parliamentary system that they know they've got to say what they then say 
to survive and to, to not be deselected or to not fall foul of the parliamentary party? It's probably a combination of habit and pressure. You know, mm. the habit is that, you know, there's it's routine. You know, um, this is how it works. You go and you do your thing. Yeah. You know, and you do things as you're expected to. You know, and we kind of know that, you know, um, someone saying something very moral uh, against something awful that the government is doing isn't going to have any effect. But we're glad that they said it, you yeah. know, and it's like, OK, there are some good people. But again, we don't address that those good people don't really get to affect much. Yeah. You know, so having having a good voice is important, um, but it needs to take that one step further. And I think the same thing can be said about the petitions and protests as well. They are super important in the sense that we know that there are other people out there that believe the same things we do, right? We can go on a march and there's camaraderie and it's like, okay, I'm not alone, you know, and that's important. But we have to stop thinking it has a natural effect when you have a government that doesn't listen. Yeah. Because it doesn't, you know, and this isn't just um, with the current government, of course, you know, uh, we had some of the biggest marches ever against the Iraq war, you know, and that wasn't the conservative government. Um, but then you go back even further. I mean, you know, C&D protests back in the day, right? We've got more nukes than we've ever had. Yeah. You know, what effect did that have? Right. You know, so it's it's that you need you need to not only say this is bad, you know, but you need to then take part in the things that change our ways of affecting those bad things. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, like, maybe it's important to look at these things as not the actual mechanism for change so like a protest is in itself is not going to change anything you mentioned the iraq war protest i think from memory that was a million people marching yeah. against it yeah. uh, and still on it went um but the the protests uh the petitions and so on all serve as little components to a gradually uh optimizing machine that eventually does kick out people from power right yeah, they're, they're movement building, you know, um, and like I say, it's about um, not feeling alone. And I think that is super important because mm. part of, you know, campaigning for things you care about is that often it's quite demoralizing, mm. you know, because you very rarely have wins, you know. Um, and while, you know, it can feel good to be part of something when ultimately you don't get what you wanted out of it, it is it's really awful. Uh, you know, we've, we've all been there. You know, we've all probably got personal stories about times where we really fought hard for something kind of knew that it wouldn't really happen uh, and then it doesn't and you're like well why why would I bother yeah and that must cross so many campaigners minds like why am I bothering what's this all for and so I think movement building is super important because you know then you can go next time and it gets bigger and there are more people understanding something and you know the details are becoming more coherent about what it is you know that uh, we're fighting for leaders emerge from you know these these communities and groups right who dedicate more of their time and are able to achieve achieve more by you know just articulating something in a better way for example right or you know uh, playing a good PR game and getting on TV but ultimately there needs to be calls to action as well and a call to action is not sign a petition right that's a step along the way you know calls to action needs to be need to be big and tangible and actually you know, things that affect change mm. you know I mean going back to um, my time at Comic Relief you know and I called out CND earlier uh, you know, you know, we make poverty history. We had something like 40 million signatures on a petition, right? I don't know of a petition that's ever been that big. Uh, for the Live 8 concerts, we had uh, globally 2.3 billion people watch those concerts, mm. right? The biggest thing I've ever seen, you know, I've, you know, there's World Cups and Olympics that might come close, but in a 24-hour period, 2.3 billion. 
but there was a flaw right and you know not only did that large number of people say you know we really hate poverty <laughs> uh you know in common relief at the time there's their you know their their um, catchphrase was pants to poverty which i thought was quite quite a good one yeah they were selling pants instead of noses for once cool um <laughs> you know, so you got all these people saying this is awful but ultimately what it, what it was was us taking these signatures to eight of the most powerful men in the world the g8 in scotland and saying please do something you know um look look how many people want you to do it yeah and they didn't and so that so the risk in asking people to do things they don't want to do is really obvious they yeah. might not do them and so you put all that energy in and you didn't get anything you want back from it you know but so then, a real a real call to action has to actually be direct change i think yeah but then like could you, is there an argument there that with the live eight signatures or the make poverty history signatures that they served as a component that then in a broader space will affect change like have we seen any reduction in poverty in that time did it serve as like the prelude to anything or i mean so you know there has been some debt dropped uh, from some of the poorest countries in the world but ultimately um you know it's not just about that climate change is of course having a huge impact on poverty as well mm -hmm. um you know democracy has an impact on poverty um you know, and we're seeing that even here, right, with more people using food banks than ever. You know, we're a rich country, right? We're what we, I think we were the fifth, we're now the sixth, possibly, yeah. uh, after Brexit. Uh, and yet we have, you know, a huge amount of people in poverty. So it's not just about uh, the debt, although some of the debt was dropped. Um, but, you know, we've also got more people in slavery than we've ever had in human history right now. Mm. You know, we just call it something different, right? Um, you know, none of these things are getting better. You know, and again, you could look at... Um, climate uh, campaigns you know the numbers are still going up yeah. right the carbon is still going up the temperature you know projected temperature is still going up even though huge amounts of effort money time and people have been involved in trying to ask other people to do something about it mm. and that's what it all comes down to asking others and what i think we really need to do is instead of having people we have to ask to do things in these positions of power we should put people in those positions of power that want to do those things yeah which, I know that's an easy thing to say out loud, but it's just so obvious. Yeah, yeah. But it, it brings me nicely on to my next question. So, like, we've talked a bit about uh, trying to raise awareness, uh, creating these petitions, lobbying. Um, what is the next step? Like, if you, if you wanted to, if you set yourself the goal of, I want to put somebody with progressive ideas into number 10, how would you do that? Um. Well, so the first thing I think is to address that a lot of people feel like there's no one, no one out there with that future vision, mm. you know, and I think that's a fair, that's a fair critique, you know, in, in politics itself, there are very few people that actually say, you know, here's, here's uh, an incredible kind of like, um, you know, vision for the future of everybody in the country, yeah. right? Um, that is fair. However, I think when you look outside of politics, there are tens of thousands of people that have those visions, whether it be for their local communities, you know, or, or globally, right? Um, and not only a vision, because having a vision is easy, but also, you know, a plan, right? And you know, actual, um, you know, uh, implementable ideas that are being implemented, you know, on, in different places or at different scales. So there are people out there that have, have that vision and the capability and are probably more honest, right? Uh, and more qualified and more representative as well. You know, they're not just the Etonian, you know, middle-aged white men, that, you know, um, we, that we come, become used to in, in government. Um, 
you know, so there are those people out there. I think that, so that's the first thing is that it's like, okay, if they're not currently standing as an MP, fine, I get it. A lot of them are uninspiring, mm. but we need to go and find other people and kind of just say, look, take the next step, right? Stand, you know, stand for something and we'll elect you, right? So that's the, that's the first thing. And I think those people are out there and going, you know, movement building is important for finding those people. Yeah. Um, the, I think the, the longer question really is that, well, the longer answer, sorry, is that, of course, the current setup is not necessarily designed to allow those people to come from nowhere uh, and and be elected. You know, at the moment, you have to go through one of the major parties. You have to go through their processes and systems and their politics uh, to then be selected. Um, you know, and then maybe you might win. Right. But then, uh, you know, that comes with all sorts of other issues as well. Um, if you're trying to stand as an independent, of course, there's lots of things stacked against you because we see politics in this country, especially um, as just a kind of, you know, one party versus the other party, the footballification of it. And no one else really gets a look in, you know, um, and even like, you know, this, the Green Party, which, uh, you know, is a small party, gets a lot of votes, mm-hmm. um, you know, uh, comparable to the SNP. Um, I think SNP have about 30% more, which is, you know, not a huge amount when you're talking a million or uh, 1.2 million votes or whatever it is. Um, and they get one seat. Yeah. Right. So even the smaller parties, um, you know, are not going to get the representation, even though people do want them there. Um, so the system obviously has to change. And, you know, obviously that's some form of proportional representation. Um, I think there's so many of us that know that's the problem. Right. Um, and we know that that's the answer. And we all kind of like we know that that's what we'll support. Um, but the trick then is, well, how do you get it? Right? Mm-hmm. How do you get PR? You know, and so the question we have at the moment is like, well, who's going to who's going to give us PR? Whose interest is it in? You know, um, yeah. it certainly isn't the current government. You know, they're doing very well with a minority of the vote. Right. Um, so then we have to try and convince you know the, the other parties to not only do it, um, well, say they'll do it, but to then do it but to somehow win the next election based on it as well, potentially. Yeah, so that's that's a trick, tricky one. Is there not a risk, though, that if you tried to implement proportional representation in the UK, that the media would just fucking shoot it down? They would be like, this is radical. This is, you know, they're trying to fix the game. They're trying to stack the deck in their own favour. And to, to an extent, we are, right? But there are other countries that operate in this way, right? Yeah, plenty. There's only us in Belarus in in, the, in Europe that don't, yeah. right? And, um, you know, that should tell you something. I think the, the media have a bias to the status quo. It's not necessarily that they have a bias against good ideas, but anything that is kind of like challenging or different, you know, is a bit weird and a bit out there. And it's like, oh, I don't know if this is a good idea. Mm. The irony there, of course, is that our current government is doing incredibly radical things every day, you know, and we just kind of accept it. You know, and like one of the most frustrating things a campaigner can ever be told is that you can't change the world when you're seeing it being changed around you all the time. Yeah. You know, so I think we just need to basically, you know, not not ignore the media entirely, um, but to call them out on that a little bit, you know. So that's easier said than done, though, isn't it? Because it's like, <clears throat> like, I've I've never been more acutely aware than in the last two weeks of how much power the British newspapers have in terms of contorting reframing distorting messaging uh and putting it into a place where 
um, you know, I would, I'd like to think I'm reasonably media savvy and I can kind of, you know, just roll my eyes at the headlines when I see them. Um, but for every other, you know, Tom, Dick and Harry on the street, who's not a news junkie or who doesn't obsess over politics, all, all that's going to happen is they're going to walk past the newsstand, see the, the headlines on the Express and the Mail and the Sun, and they're going to take that as gospel. And even if you said to them, do you trust the newspapers to tell you the truth? They would say no <laughs> but but it works like it still goes into their brain it's a drip 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 yeah um and and i f- my fear is uh that if you started suggesting proportional representation and you tried to sort of not pay attention to the media uh you'd it, it's a david and goliath fight i think they're just you know like i'm there with you i'm like yes we need proportional representation but i think the media would just be like like I, I would get demonized. They'd be like, "Look at this guy in his in his three bed home county's house, like champagne socialist, wants to upend the system." And you know, it'd be yeah. I mean, before it started. we want to rig the system in favor of the people. That's really it, right? I mean, yeah. you know, partly we we don't need to try and you know go into a lot of the nuance about how it would work. Mm. Uh, we just need to counter some of the really really simple ideas. You know, I mean, one of the um, one of the most frustrating ones is, uh, oh, but didn't we already have a vote on that? You know, it's mm. like, well, no, we didn't. You know, we had a vote on a completely different system um, that was miscommunicated by the government at the time, misrepresented by the media at the time, which, of course, is your point. Sure. Um, but ultimately, wasn't what we're talking about right now, you know. Um, and I think we just need to find the right ways of reaching people in a way that they can understand it personally. Mm. You know, and I think the obvious one is, and Keir Starmer has said this, you know, when he in his leadership race, that people don't feel like their vote counts. Mm. And, you know, I think a lot of people also think that even if their vote counts, when like I was saying earlier, when people get in, they're still not represented anyway. So there is this kind of like, you know, why should I bother kind of approach? But if you ultimately want change, then you do need people in charge who care about making that change. Your vote should count um, because that's how you get those people in there, mm. you know. And it's about talking about things on those terms, not getting stuck in the details of it, you know. And the details of it, um, frankly, are going to be worked out by much smarter people than me, <laughs> you know. And they are doing. And these are not new ideas. These are ideas that have been, you know, part of democracy for a very long time. How to work out how to make a democracy the most fair. Yeah, yeah. You know? I suppose a key thing for me would be to to take that point uh that you replied to me a minute ago that that like everyone else in europe does this (laughs) yeah so why are we this like ask yourself why are we sticking with this system when it's been deemed to be unfair and non-representative like who's telling you that this is the right way to do it and what what could their reasons be for why they're marketing it to you like this Um, yeah and also it says something about the confidence of the parties as well right if they don't think they could actually win under a system that was fair mm. I mean, (laughs) like, get them to say that out loud, right? Yeah. Like, you you think you can't win if we vote for you? Well, it's also, there's also another piece around it, uh, around the word radical. So here I am sort of, you know, playing devil's advocate that, that people would say and see it as too radical, that it was, we were trying to stack the deck and so on. Uh, But I think when, when you look at what, let's say, the rest of Europe or wherever else are doing, it's actually similar to what you were saying earlier, it's us that are the radical ones. Like we yeah. put in this radical, uh, exaggerated system to benefit a small number of people. We, we, what we're actually trying to do is step out of radicalness, you know? Yeah. 
And, you know, I think having a small group of people in charge is radical, like you say, mm. right? Um, and the, one of the big uh, criticisms that many across the political spectrum have of, of our government and, and of parliament is that people don't work together, mm. right? And they won't find compromise or they won't debate properly and they won't be grown-ups about it, you know, um, and they pantomime. Uh, and under a fairer system, um, they do have to work together more. They do have to actually come to agreements. They do have to meet in the middle. Um, you know, they do actually have to, um, you know, come come to solutions to problems together as a team. It's what we want, mm. right? We don't want them just arguing all day. I don't think anyone wants that. It's not productive. And it's just, you know, you just get bored of it. Um, you know, so I think a fairer system kind of gives us what we want in terms of cl a collaborative nature to government. Um, but also actually holds them to account as well. You know, they're not so safe. You know, mm. they need to be doing good things for us. Otherwise, we do do what people like Rob and 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 um, and Mog would say. It's like, well, they can, you know, tell us what they what they think at the election box. You know, yeah. like, well, currently, no, we can't really. Um, yeah. But I would love it if we could. You know, well, so they are even they've got this rhetoric of you know they can they can use their votes. Yeah, even even if even if people do make their voices heard at the ballot box so it doesn't make any fucking difference like last <laughs> last week they lost 500 council seats or 500 councillors uh they lost the election that's that's yeah. the headline they lost the local elections and johnson's response to it was just like i i stood there floor jawed I was, like his response to it was like well you know we're just gonna carry on deliver like there was no acknowledgement that people were tired with this sort of shady authoritarian light borderline fascist style of government the, the sort of pretty patelism the arrogance uh the incompetence absolutely no acknowledgement whatsoever just like yep well business as usual we made it through <laughs> well i mean and it is business as usual because i mean frankly the point is that you know 60 percent of the country roughly over the last several elections for the last 50 years doesn't want any of this stuff mm. right they haven't voted for them um, so they already know that actually the country doesn't want any of those things uh, and every now and then we get a chance to actually demonstrate that. Um, and of course, what they're doing is making sure that if that number grows, it doesn't matter. It doesn't affect them. Mm. You, know, the, you know, things like the elections bill, for example, are making it easier for them to stay in power. Um, so they are, they are making sure that their share of the vote can be shrinking and they will still keep in power because they know that mm. the country is against them. They know they're outnumbered. They know people don't want the things that they're doing. Yeah, this, you know, is, and a... this is the same in America as well. This isn't just a problem here. This is you know, the, the Roe versus Wade stuff, for example, right? Most of the country uh, is not on the side of the decision about to be made. Um, but it doesn't matter because the people that are actually making the decision are in safe seats mm. and they know that they can do what they want ultimately. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I was just going to say, this is a point that, uh, that Femi sometimes, uh, or well, not just sometimes that he, he touches on quite a bit, uh, where he says, you know, the majority of the country actually sit like comfortably left-leaning they want progressive policies uh they have liberal values it is just that you have this sort of split of the vote across labor lib dem greens uh which i suppose is where the tactical voting piece comes in um and you know we were just talking about local elections a second ago do you think the strength of the lib dem wins last week is a sign that tactical voting is actually getting out there are we seeing it come to fruition so, yeah, I think so. Um, local elections are quite difficult to analyze on that level. Mm. Um, but it certainly indicates, I think, that um, people are willing to vote for whoever has the best chance of winning. Right. 
Um, and that's a, that's a, a, you know, partly desperation, right? I'll vote for anyone, mm. you know, just not these guys, you know. Um, and I think the numbers do show that. And, I, you know, obviously the spin was that Labour didn't do very well while they still gained lots of councillors. Um, you know, but actually because of that kind of footballification, that's the only kind of superficial, shallow way that, that a lot of the media looks at it, right? It's like, oh yeah, but Labour didn't do that well, did they? Mm. It's like, yeah, but we did quite well as people um, because we got rid of 500 councillors, um, you know, and we voted for the candidates we thought that would, would get rid of them. Uh, and I think, you know, obviously if you, um, you know, mapped that kind of result over a general election, we're in coalition territory quite, quite comfortably, yeah. you know? Um, I personally think that um, that's the most likely outcome of a general election. Um, I also think it's probably the easiest outcome of a general election as well. I think the Labour Party winning is probably one of the hardest. Um, There's this interesting thing where I think a lot of people who are saying, yeah, but just vote Labour, just vote Labour. They're not necessarily Labour fans or Mm -hmm. fans of Starmer or fans of policies or fans of Corbyn or fans of whoever else might be in the Labour Party. But they're in the right mindset. They're in the right mindset of just vote for the people that are going to beat them. They just need the next bit, which is the tactical bit, which is, yeah, but it might not be the Labour Party where you are. Yeah. You know, so, yeah, you're on the right you're on the right track, you know, um, but here's the superpower. Here's the bit you need. It's just the right name. That's it. You know, which colour do I put my tick by? Yeah, I suppose my concern would be so with tactical voting, clearly that is a good route to eject Tories. Uh, it might mean that you then get a Lib Dem in your local, like, so in the home counties, you see a lot of kind of Tory strongholds will go Lib Dem before they go Labour. Um, uh, I wonder why we don't take that a step further and then start pushing for Labour to form some sort of formalised, like, co- like pre-election coalition with the Lib, Dem- Lib Dems. Because my fear is, and maybe you can set my mind at ease here, Josh, but my fear is that by remaining two separate parties entirely separate entities labor will go into the general election and with the absence of the red wall uh and not winning sufficient numbers in scotland and the southeast they will actually not be the largest party at the end of the general election once all the uh, votes are counted and so if the tories just inch it uh, it will be on them to form a coalition with someone else. And we might see another conservative Lib Dem coalition government. I would feel, mu- I mean, look, I'd take that over a Tory 80 seat majority, but uh, I would rather see a Labour and Lib Dem government. And if them formalising or like, I don't know, cons- like becoming one party almost like before <laughs> the general election, if that cemented it, if that made it a bit more certain, I'd just feel way more comfortable. What's your so- thoughts? Man, a lot to unpack in that. Um, first of all, I, I have very, very low confidence of the Lib Dems working with the Tories. I think they're both very, very different parties than they were 12 years ago. Right. Very different leadership, very different membership makeup now, uh, and quite frankly, different track record, right? Um, you look at Ed Davey, you know, his signalling is that they wouldn't go near it. Mm. Um, you know, but yeah, they might be kingmakers, so it'd be interesting to watch. Um, should they be one party? I think my real simple answer is, do we have to wait for them to do it? Right. Um, tactical voting doesn't require their permission or their, or negotiation with them. 
we can just work out it's maths right we can work out who's got the best chance and we can we can force them we can force their hand essentially mm. um does that mean i wouldn't encourage it absolutely would i would love them to work together right mm. um but i just don't think we need to uh, risk resting on that as being you know the only reason we'd show up um, mm. i think we can take it into our own hands and if we take it into our own hands they will know that that's what we did do you think you they know? could like labor could be the largest party after a general election without the red wall and without making inroads in Scotland because the SNP feel quite solid up there. So like, is it possible even with tactical voting for them to inch it? Um, so there are people that analyze this a lot closer than I do. Uh, and I try and pay attention to them. Um, really my personal feeling is that no, they, they probably can't win it. Um, you know, could they be the biggest party potentially with, would they get a majority? I think it's really unlikely. Yeah, you know, we're talking a bigger swing than '97, right? And that's and without Scotland, like you say, right? Um, and with potentially fewer people turning up as well, right? As you know, as we've seen, there's the apathy uh, factor. So I just, I mean, yes, it's possible. Of course, it is, and anything could happen between now and the next election. Um, but should we, uh, you know, should we basically put all our eggs in that one basket of yes, it's possible? I want to go for the thing that's most probable. Mm. Right. And, you know, things that the thing that's most probable is that we show up and kind of lock it in by voting for the best candidate in every constituency rather than just the one that uh, they've chosen for us. Yeah. You know, if we actually know based on historic data and local insights who the best candidates are, we vote them in. You know, and none of this is an endorsement of any of these people. You know, let's make that straight as well. Right. This is not saying, you know, we love this party and we love the other party. Uh, it's you know, it's a move to, it's a step towards change rather than a giant leap. Mm. I wouldn't expect a new coalition government to come in and save the world, right? I would expect them to not be the current guys and at least start to do some things to repair the damage from the last 12 years. You know, yeah. I think if we, you know, if we have a coalition and that coalition has been put in there by the people, um, they're much more likely to listen to what we want. And in a coalition, they're much more likely to have to work together as well. You know, so the Lib Dems and the Green Party, um, Pride Kimmer and, and the SNP as well, will be able to legitimately put things on the table um, that the Labour Party will have to acknowledge and work with. You know, we hope that PR will be one of those things, of course. Mm. Yeah, like one, one idea I've been kind of playing with the last week is the need for the Labour Party to, to get a sort of figurehead in that represents this kind of disillusioned far left uh, segment or faction of the party who really have a big problem with Starmer uh, and it feels to me like unless they get on top of that you're just going to continue to see more blogs by Owen Jones and more like Starmer's a Tory and like all it's just going to fester and become more of a problem so more division uh, and I just wonder to what extent you could get I mean I don't think it could be Corbyn but a, like another figurehead from the far left of the party who sits down with Starmer once a week and conveys their issues and their frustrations. And they've got that line in to him and Rayner to communicate what they need to see and to, to start building that trust back. Um, but I mentioned it to somebody yesterday and they were like, no, it's, <laughs> it's on him. Starmer has to fix it. I'm like, all right, okay. But it's, I don't know. Do you agree? Do you see that happening? I mean, obviously as a leader, a lot of things are on him. Um, you know, but politics is a team sport, right? Um, and when you have a team that won't necessarily play well with itself, um, yeah, clearly you need to do something about that. And I think it's not just the two factions. There's probably many factions that sure. don't feel like the Labour Party is going where it should. 
you know, and again, this is an argument for proportional representation, right? In that, you know, there's lots of speculation that the Labour Party and the Conservatives would probably break up at that point. Um, but what would be really happening there is that people would be able to, you know, uh, vote for people that actually genuinely uh, represent what they want, be it, you know, centrist or left in the, in the Labour Party. There'd be a party that, that represented them, mm-hmm. you know, um, and they'd have to work together again. So we'd have that more, we'd have that better representation, you know, and so it'd be people across the spectrum. Um, in terms of like, should there be like a figurehead? I mean, I don't know who it is right now. We're not really hearing anything from anyone, are we? That isn't necessarily doesn't, doesn't necessarily mean there isn't someone in there trying, you yeah. know, trying to have those conversations. I imagine that there are very pragmatic people in the Labour Party, yeah. just as frustrated as we are with you know how it's all perceived. Yeah. To some extent, I imagine it's it's an impossible fucking job being Labour leader because you do have to represent the trade unions. You've got to be a bit working class. You've got to be a bit like social justice uh and these are tip like those profiles would if you walked into a pub they would be completely separate people on different tape you know like so it's maybe asking asking one person to embody all those values or to be able to negotiate them and maneuver around them perfectly is is quite a an ask it doesn't surprise me it's quite difficult seemingly like so when corbyn was in power you had a lot of pushback from the blairites and now uh, Starmer's in power. You get a lot of pushback from the Corbynites, and it's yeah. I I don't envy anyone that's in that uh, in that top job. Yeah, I mean, you know, uh, the Conservatives uh, are currently you know must be laughing their heads off for this. This is the best situation to be in, isn't it? You know, where we can't get it together, you know, to even like form a proper uh, opposition. I guess. Um, yeah, I mean. The other, the other side of it is that it doesn't matter who the leader of the Labour Party is, you know, uh, they're going to get attacked, right? Mm-hmm. Like you say, it's an impossible job in many ways. Um, but when a lot of people, you know, and again, not an endorsement of Corbyn, but a lot of people were saying, you know, oh, anyone else, it'd be completely different. It's like, have you been paying attention? Yeah. Like, it's, it doesn't matter who it is, you know, whether you can't eat a bacon sandwich right, wear a suit the wrong way, you know, uh, went to the wrong protest. It doesn't yeah. matter. There'll be something, they'll find something and they'll attack you for it. Yeah. So, yeah, it is an impossible job. I imagine being a Tory leader is quite difficult also, though, because uh, I mean, I imagine if you're a Tory leader, i.e., you know, David Cameron or Boris Johnson, life in general is quite easy for you. But I imagine like so if you put yourself in Boris Johnson's shoes, he probably quite does not like Nicola Sturgeon because she wants to have another referendum and break away independence and obviously that would break the union. So he's not loving her in that respect. But at the same time, for as long as she's there and strong, Labour are kind of fucked. Yeah. I mean, that's it, right? As long as there's competition between the rest of us, they're fine, you know, and they can have a smaller and smaller amount of the vote, you know? Yeah. Um, There's a little bit of me that actually thinks that um, Boris Johnson wants Scotland to go, Mm. you know, because again, it just increases their majority. And I, I don't think that he is as patriotic in that sense as he's made out to be. Their motivations are very different. Their motivations are money and power. Mm. You know, if it all goes horribly wrong, he's going to retire to the south of France, just like the rest of them. Um, and, you know, that says everything about the risk profiles of different people in politics. If you've come through Eton, worked at the Daily Mail, you know, invested in the companies that you've then written policies to support, right, and made loads of money out of politics, you just try more and more risky things, right? And mm. Brexit was one of the riskiest things they did. And they were probably surprised that they won it. But if they hadn't won it, what would it have mattered to them? 
Yeah. You know, literally nothing because they're rich. Risk, rich, you know, being rich changes your risk profile. And it means you try riskier things because you have an inherent safety net at that point. Yeah. And in some ways, when, when you are that sort of person socioeconomically, even a failure is actually a win. So like, yeah. let's say for a minute he lost the Brexit referendum. Actually, what that would have yielded for him would have been a fucking book deal and speaking tours about what it would have been like had we won. And, you know, this is my, like My Lost Britain by Boris Johnson. You know, it would have done book signings and gone to colleges across the US. And so it's... they do well out of hypotheticals, don't they? Yeah. Um, OK, cool. Um, so we've, we've got sort of five, ten minutes to go. Uh and I wanted to pick your brains on this story that's, um, I hope I'm allowed to talk about this. It went on to Twitter last night, <laughs> uh, uh, quoted by um, Adam from Byline Times. Um, it was uh, on a Dom Dominic Cummings tweet where he suggested that Boris Johnson had been bunging COVID cash directly to newspapers. We don't know in return for what. We don't know how much money. But if this is true... I mean, I, I was saying earlier about the last two weeks of really, you know, I've never been more aware of the influence of newspapers and, and how far the rot has set in. But if this is true, we are through the looking glass in terms of the relationship, like the coziness between government and media, right? Well, I mean, that depends what your bar is. You know, I think uh, for a lot of people, we were through the looking glass decades ago. Right. You know? um, because, of course, this stuff has probably happened all along the way. You know, so when you find out something, you know, are you surprised? Would it surprise you if this was true? Wouldn't surprise me. You it know, I'd just, I'd just kind of go, well, yeah, of course, that's what they do. Yeah, yeah, right. So, yes, to some extent, it is what they do. And, I, you know, this isn't necessarily a partisan thing. I think back to the no. days of Alistair Campbell and Tony Blair visiting Murdoch on his yacht, trying to, you know, love bomb him and get him on side. And ultimately, that worked out very well for them indeed, right? And then when Theresa May, for example, uh, came to power... I think one of her first meetings was to like usher in Rupert Murdoch through the back door uh, to talk about messaging and comms. David Cameron, very close relationship with the Murdochs. Um, it, so it doesn't surprise me that Whitehall and or specifically number 10 uh, have a close relationship with the conduits that can funnel out their messaging. Uh, what concerns me, what is actually quite eye-watering about this is the money, like paying almost a subscription fee for good, I assume it's for good press coverage. The money flows, right? Um, you know, to give you an, an, another example, um, you know, in America, uh, elections cost billions of dollars, right? Yeah. And they go and raise a hell of a lot of money from some very wealthy people. Um, in the Trump government, of course, those wealthy people got back a hell of a lot of money in return. You know, so they invested... And I say invested because that's what it was. They got a return. It was an ROI. Yeah. Billions. And then got back literally trillions in return. Right. So it is an investment. It's not that they think Donald Trump's going to be great for the country. It's basically mm. that they know they'll get something back for it. It's an investment. So is that happening here? You know, is the question. And I think clearly it is, you know, and this is the whole problem about money in politics. You know, it's that, um, you know, again, in America, they think of money as being freedom of speech, right? Spending money is freedom of speech. And there's a very good reason for that, you know, because it then gets protected and you can do as much of it as you want, right? Mm. Um, here, you know, uh, party donations are a lot smaller, obviously. 
you know, but there are mutual interests, aren't there? You know, it, sh- it shouldn't be possible for you to have shares in a company that is you know, giving donations to your party, for example. Mm-hmm. And that's just the, the scratching the surface. You know, I mean, if you if you look back at uh, the PPE contracts as well, that was a huge amount of money going to a lot of people's friends. Right. As we're now kind of discovering those friends are going to be party donors, no doubt. Right. So you could, if you were conspiratorial about it, imagine that we've just had our tax money being given to people that are then going to spend that on the parties, you know, in return. Mm. So they're now using our money, you know, to prop up the government or to pop up the, t- the party in government, right, yeah. via basically a method of enriching themselves. And the terrifying thing about that is that, so you have these sort of checks and balances that are supposed to look over these things, uh, and specifically around the election process, you're supposed to have a standards committee, or, or an electoral commission, yeah. perhaps we'll call it, uh, who are supposed to oversee that everything's fair and set limits, um, and what's happened to the elect- uh, electoral commission? <laughs> In the last, what, exactly. four weeks, was it? Yeah, I mean, the, the Conservatives have proven they're amazing at policing themselves, aren't they? And now they're going to extend it to the elections as well. Yeah. You know, uh, so I, like... I await the report that we'll never see about how our next election goes, you know? Yeah. And it's um, it, it will be, I will be astounded if, as we approach the next general election, with them disbanding or, or neutering the Electoral Commission, that they don't. Uh, up the bar in terms of how much they can spend on campaigning knowing that they have much wealthier donors than let's say the Labour Party. Yeah and again that's another reason that money shouldn't be in politics at all right I mean there's there's other other proposed ways of of funding campaigns and funding parties Mm. Um, but ultimately what shouldn't be allowed to happen is the richest party win because that just self-perpetuates and if if your goal is to get richer and richer uh, then obviously you're going to change the system to you know make sure that you don't uh, get unelected. I mean, I think politics has just now been seen as another business sector for those yeah. people, basically, right? Um, and so, you know, reforms need to be basically, um, you know, disincentivizing politics as being a revenue stream, you know, because currently it is and it shouldn't be. I mean, politics is about, you know, um, not only protecting people, but designing our civilization, mm. you know, designing our next 500 years, you know, giving us opportunity. Um, and it's being completely misused, you know, on purpose. Uh, I mean, I I think I, I said this uh, at Byline. We've let the lords into the commons. Yeah. You know, um, they are all, they're the landowners. Uh, they were previously the slave owners. Uh, you know, they run the banks. Um, they decide who royalty is. Right. Uh, they decide what we get to see. Um, you know, uh, in the media, um, they are the lords, um, and they realised that they could get elected if they just spent enough money on it, um, and rather than having two houses. We've effectively got two houses full of the same people, you know, some of the one of the richest cabinets of all time. Right. Yeah. You know, um, if you own lots of property, how's that going to affect your policy design when it comes to, you know, housing? I mean, it's it's a perverse incentive, isn't it? Right. You've got a conflict of interests. Well, there was that stat that came out when they were voting on uh, uh, like rent caps, I think it was a couple of years ago. It said something ridiculous like 60 or 70 percent of the mps who were voting on it had buy to let portfolios yeah and you know in america again i know i keep making the comparisons but a lot of people do um people like tucker carlson right he's a huge uh, landlord so, like he's got hundreds and hundreds of properties mm. you know and so of course it's in his interest to prop up uh, politicians that support his you know um his wealth you know so 
yeah, I mean, we could go, we could have a whole other conversation about how to better design uh, how decisions are made. Mm. Um, but, you know, money is the big one, I think. You mentioned a minute ago about like the parliamentary system is supposed to be there to design society or, or civilization and, and where we're headed in the next hundred or 300 years. Um, this podcast is called Aid Thompson and Other Disappointments. So let's <laughs> let's try and leave this on a really low note, Josh. Uh, uh, do you have my I mean, let's say we fix Brexit and we get a Labour Lib Dem government in and uh, unicorns and rainbows flying around everywhere. But do you think that the human race is still going to be here in 100 years time? <laughs> um, so in a technical sense, yes, of course. Um, but in a qualitative sense, what would, it, what would it be like? Right. And I think there's still a lot to play for. Um, I mean, ultimately, we're deciding, you know, Mad Max or Star Trek, aren't we? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, putting the climate stuff to, to the side for, for, you know, for a second, because I think obviously that's the big one. Um, automation is actually, I think, one of the most important things. And the way that automation will affect our lives goes in one of two really obvious directions, right? It either makes jobs completely irrelevant, but some people still get incredibly rich by selling us stuff, uh, or it makes jobs completely irrelevant. Notice that's the same in both scenarios. Yeah. Um, but it enriches everybody's lives as a result, right? So, oh, no one has to work anymore. It's a, it, it's a utopia. Right. And that's a really simple decision. It's like, do we let people who have lots of money basically continue to have lots of money for doing nothing just because they historically had lots of money, mm. uh, you know, built on the backs of lots of people that didn't, you know, or do we say, well, that's not such a good idea, is it? Look where we've ended up. How about if we just let stuff happen on its own, you know, for automation? You know, um, I'm sure there's an Asimov uh, book about this. Um, and then we're free at that point to pursue art and science and sport and music and you know making not only our lives better but everyone else's and I think clearly that's the thing that most people would want and I imagine that people across the political voting spectrum you know would much prefer that second outcome given the choice and mm. I think I think that's one of the um, one of the biggest paradoxes we have right now is that actually if you unlabel who a policy was written by there is vast support for progressive policies across the spectrum right uh, when it comes to housing or you know jobs or you know and if you pick a pick a topic right um you know when you when you then say oh yeah but this is a labor policy people go oh actually no i changed my mind yeah yeah it's like well okay but let's focus on the policies instead then yeah yeah we I mean, have I was... a lot more in common than i think people realize yeah and but it goes back to what you were saying before about like the footballification of it like people just don't want to nail their colors to that mast kind of thing you know yeah i mean so one of the things that i realized about brexit and i only realized this very recently really i should have realized it a lot earlier was that a lot of people did vote for brexit for good reasons mm. you know they they care about the nhs right they do want the nhs to be well funded that was a genuine thing you know um they were just lied to about what was going to happen yeah you know but the important thing is that they do care about the nhs so again there's that commonality Right, that we have across both the voting, uh, you know, the, the voting divide for Brexit, and I imagine for parties as well, that we do predominantly care about the same things. We have the same aspirations for our families and our lives. You know, we have the same concerns. Um, you know, as as all, you know, as everyone. Um, we just choose to put our, you know, our cards on one particular table or the other. Yeah, it's just well, <clears throat> it's like anything, isn't it? It's like uh, the Roe Wade thing, where you said, you know, most Americans actually support. Yeah, uh, women's rights in that respect. Um, 
it's like build more social housing over here. Most people agree that we need to build more, more social housing. It's just a case of getting us over that hump, whether it's in Westminster or Washington or wherever. Mm. Uh, I think if we look at those as the opening chapters of human nature and civilization, then maybe uh, the utopia or dystopia. <laughs> it's not looking too good, Josh. I think things are never going to be perfect, right? But if we aim for perfect, uh, you maybe know, we'll and don't good. even get something that's good. Yeah, yeah. You know, okay. small steps. Cool. Well, thank you very much for, for joining me this afternoon, Josh. Uh, if you want to follow Josh, he's on Twitter. Uh, what's your handle on Twitter again? Remind me. Uh, Josh Forwards, Josh FWD. There we go. Uh, give him a follow. And uh, I'll be back next Wednesday for the solo edition of the podcast and next Friday night with a guest. Thanks very much, everyone, for jumping on the live stream. Uh, and uh, I'll catch you next time. Ciao for now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.